and welcome back to The Restroom, the podcast about living well with chronic illness. I'm your host, Natasha Littman. As someone who grew up with undiagnosed EDS, I've spent pretty much my whole life interacting with different medical professionals. GPs, physios, rheumatologists, ENT specialists, gastroenterologists, neurologists, you name it, I've probably met them. And every time I meet someone new, there's a fear of the unknown. Will they listen to me? Will they be able to help me? Will they try and make me take medication that already made me really ill? Will they be kind, funny? Will they be a massive bloody asshole? Who knows? Each of us interacts differently with medical professionals. Apart from rare instances when I'm upset or angry, I tend to be quite stoic to the point. Generally knowing what I need from an appointment, I've learned to explain my symptoms, how they're impacting me, and discuss potential next steps. I've learned the hard way how to advocate for myself, how to ask questions, and to evaluate the information I'm given. And I've come to realise that medical communication is a skill, and it's one we're simply not taught. That's why I was really delighted to be able to speak to Hannah Barham-Brown, a chronically ill GP and disability activist. Hannah offers an amazing perspective because she has experiences on both sides of the doctor-patient relationship. In this episode, we discuss the challenges facing doctors in our overstretched, underfunded system and how this impacts on patients. We also explore how doctors can create a space for patients to be open, honest and supported, and learn tools that we as patients can use to help us communicate with our medical professionals to ensure that we're both getting the best out of the very limited time we have together. I learned a lot from our conversation and I hope you do too. I started by asking Hannah about her experiences of being a patient. Yes, it's always a really challenging thing when you're going to see a doctor and I completely get that it's absolutely terrifying sometimes when you're seeing a new doctor you don't know. I think like everything I say kind of has to be prefaced with, I don't feel that the current health system is set up for people with chronic illnesses. I don't feel that we have the infrastructure to appropriately manage people with chronic illnesses. I think we are, particularly at the moment when, honestly, the whole NHS is a bin fire, we are desperately just floundering around and all we can do is see the most acute thing at any given time and that long-term care, the structure's gone for it. So in terms of like my experiences, they've been kind of many and varied, but I was originally diagnosed with EDS, Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome, back when I, in around 2016, 2017, when I was still at medical school. And so like from the very first diagnosis, it was a weird kind of appointment because she knew I was a medical student at the hospital where she was seeing me. I'd literally come from my lectures because our medical school was in the hospital. And so the kind of relationship I often have with my clinicians is a bit different to the standard person with chronic illness because they know I'm a doctor and I make it very clear I'm a doctor. And that's something that those of us who are doctors who see doctors are very split on. So some of us will not tell anyone that we're a medic. I tend to go in and go, look, so here's the thing. I am a GP. That doesn't mean I'm an expert in this. So please just talk to me like you would anyone else and let me feel like I can ask the stupid questions that I feel I should probably remember from medical school finals. So there's already that slight imbalance there. My first consultant was, you know, lovely, but I think I kind of adopted the 
right, I'm disabled, this is who I am now, like, let's crack on with this attitude very, very early into getting my diagnosis, because I'd been waiting for a long time, you know, and I'd grown up around disability, it wasn't a scary thing to me in the same way as it would be to many other people. And I think she was quite taken aback by that, you know, the second or third appointment I saw her, I turned up in a wheelchair, I turned up on crutches. And she was just like, whoa, 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 okay, this is this is fast. And I was like, well, this is what I needed to get through the rest of my medical degree. And I'm not going to sit there and wait for permission from a doctor or whoever to tell me I need a wheelchair because I know no none of us are trained to do that. And I think that's something we can potentially talk about later. That's something I'm doing a lot of work on at the moment. So I think that's always been a bit tricky. I'm really, really lucky at the moment in that I have a fantastic GP who is kind of the GP I want to grow up to be. She's like 20 years ahead in her career. Um, And I think we're very similar personality types, which probably helps. But, you know, I met her right at the beginning of the pandemic. And it's now got to the stage where we have a good working relationship. I don't see her often. I maybe see her like three or four times a year. I don't really have any consultant follow-up or anything like that. But we have the kind of relationship where I can go in and I can say, look, this is what I'm finding hard. This is what I think I might need. Can we discuss that? And she's there and we have that discussion. And I go in not to demand stuff, very much to kind of like say, I'd like to discuss this. And we kind of got that relationship where I will listen to her and I will 100% kind of go, you know what, I need to put my medical care back in the hands of someone else. I need to not be my own doctor, which is really hard. But also I feel like I can kind of push back a bit and go, I was kind of hoping for this. What do you think? So I think that's really important. In terms of neurodivergency, I would add, I had a really, I've had some really terrible experiences. I first, like I've always suspected I had ADHD and never wanted to do anything about it. I only got my diagnosis two years ago when I was like 32, 33, um, having failed a lot of medical exams. And um, I had about a year prior to that had quite a sizable breakdown um my life had gone to crap um I was really really mentally unwell and I just moved to Yorkshire I was very very isolated I went to what's called practitioner health program which is meant to be a kind of like service for doctors run by doctors particularly for those struggling with mental health issues but other stuff as well I said to this guy who was a qualified GP um I think I have some ADHD traits I'm not looking for a diagnosis but I think you know in the context of who I am and how I'm experiencing this that's important. And he just looked at me and said, Hannah, you've got four bachelor's degrees. Don't be ridiculous. There's no way you have ADHD. And that meant that I didn't think about it for another year. I just went, oh my God, I'm so stupid. Like I I can't have this then. That's fine. And then I started failing exams. And then like more and more traits came through, particularly in the pandemic, which heightened everything and made the world was a horrendous place for those of us neurodivergent. All of that came out and it made it so much harder for me to go out and seek diagnosis and support because that one guy had told me I was being ridiculous and the impact of that was huge. And even now I'll occasionally get colleagues going, seriously, but you're like super highly qualified. Really? Really? You think that's the problem? And I'm just like, I'm also incredibly good at masking and it's exhausting. And so, yeah, I think that's been a real challenge is trying to explore the neurodivergent world when I'm used to kind of sitting there going look my body clearly does not work that's very easy as a conversation compared to going my brain is a bit wonky but you can't see it you just have to take my word for it that's a conversation I found far harder with medical professionals than the physical stuff strangely enough. 
So one of the things that you were saying about those those invisible experiences, making it more difficult for doctors to recognize, understand, and in many ways believe you is something that is so common for people living with these conditions that we tend to deem the invisible illnesses or the chronic illnesses. And I think that's something that I really want to unpack with you today in terms of not just tools and techniques that patients can use in order to find ways to communicate with their medical professionals, but what types of things medical professionals need to do in order to create a space that feels inclusive enough and open enough for patients to be able to come and talk to them about these conditions. And I think a really nice place to start would be with the medical professionals. I think for a long time, I put so much of all of this on myself in terms of how can I better communicate? How can I think about what I'm saying, how I present? But actually, I think it's really important to talk about this first from the perspective of medical professionals, because it is ultimately their responsibility to create an environment where we feel we can go in and talk about the things that are going on with us that are so challenging for us. And one thing I'll just say very quickly, I interviewed Dr. Gavin Francis, who's also a GP, about his book that was all about convalescence and recovery. And we had a really fascinating conversation. And something that he said to me was that he thinks a lot of times that patients have negative experiences with their clinicians is down to the fact that the clinician doesn't know how to adapt to be the type of clinician that a patient needs. So some patients need a lot of emotional comfort and support and they're there type of thing. Some people just see the doctor as like a gatekeeper to the next doctor or they just want the scientific information like I know the very specific type of I need a doctor with a specific type of sense of humor <laughs> to get me and I'm 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 very kind of to the point in my medical appointments although I have to say I love my gynecologist but once I cried because they hadn't been able to help me and I said to her Oh, no, she said to me, sorry, I'm so surprised to see you crying. You're so put together. And I normally and I said to her, I come to you because I was getting suicidal every month because of my periods. Of course, it affects me. So that in and of itself is my way of talking about things in a medical environment can be very beneficial. But then sometimes because I'm not super emotional about it, that's then taken a different way. It's a messy and a complicated thing. So that's a very long way of saying how can we start this conversation by talking about clinicians and the role of the clinician and what can clinicians do to help make the environment better for their patients I completely agree with what Gavin was saying I mean if you think if I kind of just think with my GP hat on on average we get seven minutes per patient once you kind of take in all of the admin and stuff we get seven minutes face-to-face time with each patient And if you're meeting someone for the first time, particularly someone with, you know, more complex health needs or a long health story, you can very easily spend five, six minutes of that just going through their medical history and not dealing with the issue that's in front of you that day. And I think the key element of that is kind of building those relationships. So particularly at the moment, and this is why I say at the moment, the NHS is not built for people with chronic illnesses at all. The infrastructure isn't there because at the moment, trying to get consistent appointments with a GP that knows you is incredibly hard. And so as a result, I often get patients who come in and 
often quite rightly assume that I haven't been able to read their entire medical history. I will have had a glance to try and work out what what is coming in. So any information you can give about the specific reason for that appointment beforehand, hugely important. People think that the receptionists are kind of like just nosy women who run the desk. That's completely not true. That information, that five word here to discuss UTI, here to discuss whatever it might be, is absolute gold dust to me as a clinician. That's what I want because then I can flick through your notes and go, right, I don't need to think about that today. I don't need to think about that today. I don't need to think about that today. Let's focus in on that history of UTI or whatever it was a year ago. So that's really important. But it's very hard to get those consistent appointments with a GP, you know, Um, and it's very hard to get enough time to do all of this. So often I kind of, I really encourage people to come in with a list and my more complicated patients if they come in with a list like the size of my arm that's not uncommon um even my technically not complicated patients do that quite often because it can be so hard to get appointments and I completely understand why I will often sit there and go right first things first let's go through this list let's work out if there's anything on there that's ringing alarm bells in my head that I need to deal with acutely and let's make a plan potentially to get you back because I think that's really important to kind of like try and build those relationships and bring back Obviously, that's very dependent on a system that allows you to do that. And at the moment, a lot of the systems don't allow us to do that. So I think from the perspective of what GPs can do, kind of trying to build that relationship where we're not constantly firefighting is really, really key, but it's really, really hard. I always try and come at things as a kind of partnership with my patients. I bring something to the table, which is 10 years of medical expertise and a lot of training and far too many exams but I don't live in that person's body I don't you know have that person's day-to-day experience I don't know if they're struggling to go to the shops to get food whether they've you know also caring for five or six family members whatever it might be that is what the individual brings that is what the patient brings and so I think we have to start Medicine is trying to do that more, seeing it as more of a partnership, a working relationship than this doctor has access to this, doctor can send you to this, doctor can fix this. Because actually a lot of the time I can't fix things. That's very hard. People come to me and they expect me to be able to go, take this pill and your problems will go away. Go and see the specialist and your problems will go away. And we are not good at having the conversations of going, you know what, yeah, you may be living in pain for the rest of your life. Can't fix that. Nobody can fix that. How can we work together to ensure you still have a really good quality of life? And those are the discussions that take time and they take a good relationship. Because if you come in and you go, I'm in pain and I need it fixing. And my immediate response is, can't, sorry, that's you forever. How can we make that better? You're not going to sit there going, oh my goodness, what a great GP. I'm so pleased with this appointment. You're going to go, bloody hell, she's got no idea what's wrong with me. I'm going to go and see another one. I just want more drugs. I want X, Y, Z, which is totally understandable if you're living in pain and it's affecting every single decision you make all day. But that's not necessarily the best thing. But you need time to build the relationship where as a patient, you trust me. And whereas a doctor, I can say to you, honestly, we need to think around this more. So I'm not sure whether I answered your question because it's such a complex area and it's so patient and physician specific and system specific. So it's quite daunting to try and go, I know how to fix this. My childhood GP was infamous for being so late to every single appointment. You could wait over an hour for your appointment, but it was because he gave his patients the time 
that they needed. So there was a huge knock-on effect, especially if you were going at the end of the day, you always wanted to be that first patient. Obviously, this was in the NHS, what, 20 years ago, 30 years ago. It's very different. But he was really famous for you got as much time as you needed. But that's really not feasible now and I I still think back to that because I used to get very annoyed as a teenager having to sit in those horrible uncomfortable chairs for an hour and my mum always said just don't complain about it because if you need time he will give you that time so if you have to wait because somebody else needed that time you're gonna have to wait and one thing I will say that I think makes a huge difference is communication though so I went to see a new EDS doctor And her secretary called me while I was on the way to say that she was running late and I was getting updates and she was late maybe an hour, an hour and a half. It was, it was quite a long wait, but I was getting updates at how long I would have to be waiting. And just that recognition that I'm a person with other things in my life or that sitting in that time, I hadn't factored that in, into my energy for the day. That was very difficult. It made me feel I don't get as annoyed and frustrated about waiting if I'm told that I'm going to have to wait as opposed to just this ongoing, where am I in the queue? Is there two people in front of me? Are there 10 people in front of me? That in and of itself can help me better plan things and my life. And you can't wait. If you have fatigue, if you have pain, sitting there for a long time, not knowing how long you're going to be sitting, especially in very uncomfortable chairs most of the time. It's a a very small communication piece, I think, just from the perspective. I know that's asking for more work. So um, I don't know how feasible that is. But just from a patient perspective of of feeling recognised that you have other things in your life. I think that's absolutely key. And that's something that because, you know, in GP land, we often get people come in who really need to be in a hospital or need an ambulance calling there and then or collapse in front of you or come in for a routine blood test and collapse. Like all sorts of things happen. I think people often think that we just sit in the room, see a nice patient, take the blood pressure, send them away. We often do deal with acute situations, and um, particularly with the long waits at A&E. I've had people turn up in having like full-on psychotic episodes. You need to deal with what's in front of you, and you can't be thinking too much about what's in the waiting room as well. Otherwise, we all just burn out. And like the worst thing in the world is when you've got patients four in the top of your screen because you're like, that's how late I'm running. But it can take me, you know, over an hour to deal with somebody and I've got a 10 minute appointment. So that can really happen. And I, that's very hard to then explain. So I generally will pop through to reception and go, can you just let the people waiting for me know that I'm dealing with an emergency I am going to be running late different surgeries handle it differently so we have like a duty doctor who if you know crap really does hit the fan I can go I'm really sorry are you possibly able to see one or two of mine because I'm dealing with this and you know we've got a really good very small but really good team who will go yeah of course Anna don't worry like you do what you need to do Um, but that's not the case everywhere So I think, you know, yeah, having those communications with patients is really crucial. A loved one of mine ended up in A&E the other day with a query fractured pelvis. A&E was, you know, a bin fire, an absolute bin fire, even on a Monday night. And she was kind of x-rayed and then left in a waiting room on a really uncomfortable plastic chair with no information. And in the end, she was in so, so much pain that she ended up self-discharging. And she basically said, look, I'm really, I cannot physically stay here. If there is no bed, I can't sit And I can't really stand. I need to just be horizontal. If there is no bed, can you at least tell me what the weight is? You know, 
can you tell me whether somebody can call me with the results of this? It's been a problem for over a week. Like I'm not that worried about staying in. If And just having that kind of thinking around the challenges and going, you know what, would it be better if I just call you later? Um, can this be a phone call rather than a face-to-face, save you sitting in the waiting room getting cold? You know, all of these kind of things can be really helpful, but it's dealing with that every 10 minutes, you've got something new and exciting coming in. You've got no idea what it is. <laughs> It's a really chaotic job when you think about it. Um, Perfect for someone with ADHD, but um, it's quite chaotic. And that's what people don't see when they're sitting in the waiting room. They don't see the chaos that's going on behind reception. Of course. And one of the things you were talking about before is needing that time to and consistency of coming back to see the same doctor to build that doctor-patient relationship. One of the things I think about a lot is how people from different cultures and different backgrounds communicate with their medical professionals so for example I grew up in a family that was extremely open about talking about health there wasn't really any shame attached to that I feel very comfortable going into the doctor and just being like this is my deal probably helpful given that I write about health on the internet probably why I write about health on the internet I have friends who said that they barely even can talk about it in their own family because it is considered shameful for them to talk about their ill health so you know, when people ask me for advice on this, I'm like, I I don't know. Like, it's very easy for me to just say, go and tell them. It's not that easy. So how can medical professionals create that space for people who, who might not feel comfortable or able to come in and actually tell you what is going on? So this is really tricky. And I think one of the key issues we have, and it's possibly slightly separate, is that a lot of people don't understand how general practice works, what general practitioners do, particularly patients that are potentially coming from services abroad. They have very, very different medical systems. And that's something I see a lot is that people come in and they're like, I need you to send me to a cardiologist and I need this medication that is not made in the UK. And uh, my cardiologist in this country says, you need to do this. And I'm just like, whoa, 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 whoa. I really like my GMC number. And if I don't do this properly, I could lose it. So, you know, as much as you might be telling me somebody in a different country has said this, I can't just go off that, particularly when there's no letters and it's literally my excess. (laughs) So I was like, okay. Um, You know, we need to do things according to the system. We need you to to get you in front of the right person. You know, there's only so much I can do within the National Health Service at a time. And trying to explain that and explain those cultural differences and how it works over here is really difficult sometimes. But I think when it comes to people feeling like potentially uncomfortable about coming in, giving us a heads up of what it is, like that comes back to the using the reception when they ask, can I ask a bit about what's going on? Like using that can be a really nice kind of gentle way of breaking in. Even if you just say something like, it's to do with my bladder or if you say oh it's it's a women's health issue that's great that has narrowed down the entire encyclopedia of medicine down to one area for me and that's or two and that's making it a lot easier for me to kind of know why you're coming in and have a think about it and think about how I'm going to communicate with you about that because you know I will talk very differently to somebody who's popped in with an ear infection potentially to somebody who's got you know a 30-year history of a really complex medical disability those consultations are going to be very different and it's very difficult for me to gauge exactly who's in front of me at the time bringing people 
I think is really helpful. Um, now we can do that again post-COVID. Think about who you're bringing though, <laughs> because sometimes you can bring somebody who will just talk over you. And that can be the most challenging thing for a doctor-patient relationship sometimes is when you've brought in very well-meaning auntie who thinks she knows what's going on with your body better than anyone. She knows what you need and she just wants to get it for you. Totally understand why, but if I'm asking a question of a patient, there's a reason for that. My cat's just broken in. He should be relatively well behaved. So, you know, thinking about who you're bringing in and talking to them about what you want to say and what you want to get out of the appointment first is really important. And lists. I love a list. I love it when a patient comes in with a list. It is a bit of a heart sink moment sometimes because you're sitting there going, oh God, how are we going to get through all of this? But it allows us to structure the appointment together and to work through the kind of expectations and priorities we both have. So simple things like that can really help because it gives me an idea of, you know, some flashpoints. There are things that a lot of people feel awkward talking about and I can be prepared for that if I know it's kind of coming and think about how we have those conversations. And if, you know, you're sitting there going, if like, for example, a doctor wants to do an internal exam and you're a bit kind of like, oh, it's completely reasonable to say, I'm going to, can I come back and have that done another day? Is that okay? We might say hand on heart, you're going to be waiting a few weeks then. And that might be a decision you have to make because we can't necessarily just fit you in after a few days when you've had time to get your head around it that's not something we can easily do but I think being able to kind of sit there and go can I come back for this can we reschedule that can I have some time to think about my options absolutely fine the worst thing I can do the worst medicine I can give is one that a patient won't take the worst intervention I can make is one that a patient won't kind of agree with and won't take part in because that's wasting your time and mine And we don't have that kind of time at the moment. So I'd far rather say, let's have a think, come back and see me in a couple of weeks and we'll go from there. We don't have to get everything done in one appointment. And having those conversations and giving people time to kind of digest and think and discuss with their family, whatever it might be, is really, really helpful. Again, though, that's where the infrastructure can often let us down. You talked about lists. I love a good list. I am a list person. Mind maps make no sense to me. I am, I'm a list person through and through. When it comes to thinking about preparing a list or let's, let's create a little scenario because that might be helpful. Say you're a person who has started experiencing something like symptoms of long COVID, for example, and you've been very poorly, very scared and you don't really understand what is going on with your body. We know how common it is for patients with symptoms to do with things like fatigue, like brain fog, how like pain, how often they get dismissed by their medical professionals. And we've had this conversation about how much of this is on the system, how much of this is on medical professionals to create that environment where patients feel like they're able to come in. I am interested in whether there is anything that patients can do in terms of how they maybe think about presenting their conditions if you've got a very short space of time and you're obviously very scared and you're very upset and you're kind of very emotional for understandable reasons but you only have seven minutes 
it's very easy to not get to anything of the substance of what is going on in that time. And so planning and preparation can be really, really beneficial to helping you make the most of that appointment. So how can somebody as a patient start thinking about the preparation that they could do to be as effective as possible in getting the information they need to to their medical professionals? It's such a good question. And I think it's so important. And it's something we don't discuss enough, how to best use your GP appointment and how to best use the NHS more widely. And it changes all the time. So it makes perfect sense that people don't always get it right. Um, whatever right is. As GPs, when we learn to consult, we often use what's called the golden minute. Um, and that is like getting somebody in and some of GPs are taught literally to just sit there in silence and wait for the patient to just spill. I hate that. I can't do it. It makes me feel really awkward. Maybe it's my neurodivergent brain. I'm always like, so what's been going on? Um, Others like a, how are you? But that's a really open one. And I always try and think about the fact that the patient would have been sitting in the waiting room or planning for this appointment for weeks. And they will have a very clear kind of, "Ah, I need to get all of this out. And the first question I ask, if it throws them, then that can like take a while to get back to the point. So I tend to go with a, what's been going on because it's really open if you ask someone how they are they generally go oh I'm fine thanks doc how are you and next thing you know he's like this is not about me crack on like what why are you here so thinking about you know what you want to say and how you want to use that golden minute is really key so you know we obviously love a list one great thing I saw recently was where somebody had come in with a few different issues and you know I do this I recently went and saw my doctor saying I've got a breast lump I've got an infected finger and I need a fit note or I need a prescription for x please and they was like fine boom 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 not a problem what this person had done had gone I've got a few issues now some surgeries have a very strict one problem per consultation rule which can really throw you so go in instead of the list of symptoms rather than a list of this is what I need fixing and I think with people with chronic health conditions we know enough of the system that we know potentially what's wrong with us but there are a few things That's going to be a challenge and think about how you want to prioritize those things. We're both just going to have to accept we can't do everything in seven minutes. So how do you want to prioritize those things? What's most important to you? Put them in order, but also have a symptoms list. If you're sitting there going, I have no idea what's going on, but my body hates me. Then if it's something like long COVID, which is a great example, you know, you can sit there going, yeah, brain fog, fatigue, shortness of breath, shortness of breath on exertion when I'm going up and down stairs. What specifically are you struggling with? Often people, if they come in with a list of symptoms like that, I can go, boom, got a very good idea of what's going on. If I'm having to kind of tease it out and go, uh, and how are you managing on stairs? And how are you doing X? That takes more time as well. And my brain's having to kind of process whilst we go which it's doing anyway, but having it all in front of me, I find really helpful. So thinking about a list of symptoms is great. And like, it's a bit like writing a press release, right? So when you write a press release, you can tell that I've not been a doctor forever. I've done other stuff. When you write a press release, you write your kind of headline and the key thing that you want the journalist reading this to pick up on. And it might be, we're having a bake sale to raise funds for the Ukraine. Great. Those are the first two lines. So, you know, bake sale in village. And then it's like fundraising bake sale is happening for Ukraine on this date. And then you have all the bump, right? You have quotes from lovely people. You have all of that stuff. That's kind of how I would structure my GP appointment if I was going in to see my doctor. Here's the major issue. Here's how long it's been going on. Here's how it's affecting me. Ideally, here's what I am hoping you can do about it. 
if you can go in with those things kind of clearly distilled in your head, if you don't know the answer, that's fine. Tell us. So we're trained to ask people's ideas, concerns and expectations, how it's affecting people's kind of daily life. So their biopsychosocial element and, you know, what they're hoping for. And if you can do all of that, we've got a great appointment on our hands. It's not always possible, obviously, and that might be over a few appointments, but being able to really structure what you want to get out of that appointment and what's really worrying you and distilling that down makes our lives a lot better. And that's where that kind of partnership working comes in. It can be really frustrating as a clinician when somebody walks in and goes, oh, my life is crap, just fix it. And you get that a lot. And it's like, okay, now let's take away the assumption that I can work miracles. And let's think about like the individual things we can work through. Then we've got a partnership, but that takes work on both people's parts. And that takes buy-in from both people. And I think that's what we often need to work on. And I appreciate that I'm going to get it's very cheesed off people listening to this going, no, I need my GP to fix things. That's not necessarily what we're here for, unfortunately. I think that's a really important point. And I remember the first time a doctor said to me, I'm putting you on painkillers. I've, I've come off of all of my opioids um, over the last few years. But I remember him saying to me at the time, you are not going to be pain free on this. And the expectation shift and the recognition of that, I think it's as you said, we are not taught that you do expect. And I think this was something that a lot of people learn the hard way. But and I speaking to people who got long COVID who'd only had very minimal experience with the medical profession before that, and very easy experiences before that, you know, they had an ear infection, they got eardrops, they were better, that was their experience. So when it becomes something more complex, I think we as people, we we generally believe that you go to the doctor, they make you better. And so there is that expectation shift of if you believe that you should be able to take a pill and your pain will go away, if you're not getting that, it completely, and you don't realize that that is unlikely, it completely changes the relationship that you will also have with your medical professionals and your own health, because you're always going to be disappointed and frustrated. Whereas I think what You've said several times, it seems like it's a conversation around expectation setting. In my personal experience, I can only talk about my own personal experience, it's actually quite rare. There seem to have quite often not been expectation setting involved in those wider conversations about this is what is reasonable, this is what you can potentially expect. Here are some ways we can work around some of the challenges of these things. And I think it is a a wider cultural thing of like, we still expect you go to the doctor, they make you better. Exactly. And that's what doctors expect as well. We are trained. And I think, you know, it's very wrong, actually. I think, you know, there's a lot that needs to change in terms of medical education, but we still have this kind of slight superhero complex. And the very ways we're taught of we're going to, you know, grill this medical student on a ward round in front of a patient. And if they don't know the 27 different causes of jaundice, then they're clearly an idiot. That kind of like grilling of people that they need to know the answers, they need to have the solution. And then they get into the real world as a doctor and you're like, actually, we often don't have that. And it's awful for us to have to say to people, we can't fix you. And I hate doing it. I hate having to say, I'm really sorry, you're probably going to be living with this forever. Because I, I came into this to help people. And you have to kind of do a bit of a rejig in your brain going, helping people doesn't always mean fixing them. Helping people can be a matter of setting those expectations and then thinking how we can make 
that life manageable you know as a patient who has you know chronic pain type issues because my body likes to just dislocate people often get a bit baffled as to why I'm not just constantly taking painkillers and so that is a decision I've made I've made a decision to use more mobility aids to spend more time in a wheelchair from an earlier stage of my illness because I don't want to live the rest of my life on naproxen and NSAIDs and, you know, drill a hole in my esophagus and all of the side effects and issues that come with that. I am aware I'm going to be in pain and I am, I'm not, I'm not okay with it. Of course I'm not okay with it. It bloody hurts, but I'm kind of resigned to that. I've accepted that and I'm going to try and plan my life around that. And if that means that some days I'm going to have to call in and say, you know what, I'm doing it from bed today then that's what I'm going to have to do. And if that means that I can't have a full-time medical career and I freelance, otherwise that's what I have to do. And so, you know, I think once I know that, once I have those expectations, and this is where the privilege of being a medic with disabilities comes in, because I knew what the long-term kind of impacts potentially could be, I could make life decisions and crack on. But I think unless doctors are bold enough to have those conversations and go, you know what, we can't fix this but what can we do to make things better, then patients aren't going to necessarily have that expectation set either. Um, So I think that kind of honest, open communication is really key. And it's something that we're really scared of doing a lot of the time. One of the things that I think about a lot with this is, yes, expectation setting. Yes, we need to talk about the impacts of these conditions and how we can help. But a lot of the times there aren't actually resources out there that are available for people to help them. Like one of the the most important things is just time, (laughs) just having somebody to talk to, having somebody to recognize that. But I think also what you said about, I can't help you, but I want to help you in a different way. I think that's so important. And I, I really do find that if I go to a doctor and they say, I don't know, I don't know what we could do to help you, but... I am here for you and I want to help you figure that out is so, so important. But I I also think one of the challenges is what then can they do? Because if you can't get access to psychological support, if you can't get access to physiotherapy, if you can't get access to whatever things you need to do day to day, I've been very open about saying I spend a lot of money on managing my health and I self-fund that because I need to have it regularly and long term. Most people do not have that kind of ability to do that. And so I know that my health would be a lot, lot worse if I wasn't fortunate enough to be able to self-fund my care. These conditions can impact relationships, your ability to work, your ability to have hobbies, your ability to engage in the things that are important to you. And talking to people like you and talking to clinicians that work in this space a lot, I feel very heartened by their willingness and openness to have those conversations but that is not the norm for most people especially when those resources just are not there so when it comes to a having those conversations and having the time to have those conversations about the wider impact that your health has on your life and then saying okay I want to be able to help you manage this because I can't make your pain go away what can we do what can what can you do when there aren't really resources easily accessible to people so I see my job as being part detective which is great because that's what I always wanted to be when I was growing up anyway um so I'm part detective in that people come in with a whole range of different symptoms and results and tests and stuff and I go ta-da here's your diagnosis hopefully but also um I think the kind of social prescribing community building 
personal holistic element of my job is the bit that probably really excites me and gets me out of bed in the morning. And that's the stuff I love. And I think when many of us go into general practice, it's because we love that. We love that kind of getting to know a patient and their family. Like often I will see an entire family over the course of a couple of months, I will meet every single part. And so I can put things together and I can go, you know, X does this job, his wife does this job, their kids are doing this. And that gives me this amazing kind of insight into who they are, what their priorities may be, how they live. So a lot of that doesn't necessarily even need to be said sometimes. And that's what I love about general practice. That's what gets me excited about it. And that is what's been taken away. Um, for many of us. And when I think about, you know, whether I'm going to leave medicine altogether, which a lot of us are considering at the moment, because it's a bin fire, that would be the main reason why, because I don't get to do the job I love, which is that kind of community building, wholesome stuff. Like I'm trying to get a community garden set up in the practice. I'm doing a kind of library thing in the waiting room where people can just come and pick and take a book. We have now social prescribers, which we can send people onto. So who've got like, networks of all the different organizations and that might be an exercise organization it might be a mental health group it might be a financial service that can help advise you regarding that you know food banks all of this sort of stuff so I can send you to something and in Leeds it's called linking leads and they've got more time to sit down with you for half an hour and go right what are the real problems you're facing what are you struggling with day to day in terms of your life and how can we help with that whether it's because of illness or whatever how can we help you But that's traditionally the role the GP always took, was that we knew all the different services and we could direct and we had the time to have those conversations. That's getting taken away from us now. We're getting more and more specialised. And whilst, you know, some people might love that, I don't personally, and I find it really frustrating. I try and like find ways around a lot of the time. So I'm using more and more resources, things like... Um, YouTube videos, clips. Um, I'll recommend radio stuff. I will have often like lists of all the different mental health resources and just highlight things I think might be useful to any given patient. And I prescribe books a lot (laughs) to the extent I've now got a list that I'm taking to my local library saying, can you please stock all of these? Because I want to recommend them to patients. And I work in a very socioeconomically deprived area where they can't afford to just pop into Waterstones and buy them necessarily. So things like that, just kind of knowing the networks around you can be really helpful. But it is incredibly frustrating that I don't get the time necessarily to do that with every patient. My specialist interest is kind of in sexual well-being and gender and relationships. And I find that fascinating, but you have to get to know somebody before you can sit there going, so tell me about your sex life. (laughs) Um, You can't just open with that. They get very weirded out by it. But, you know, I think those are the kind of conversations that really matter. And it's something I feel particularly strongly about because, you know, as a member of the LGBTQ community, I'm aware that the conversations we have, the relationships we have with physicians are often very challenging and many of us have had bad experiences on that front and that means that we don't access healthcare when we need it lesbians are more likely to go to A&E than they ask their GP they will choose A&E instead and I think we need to ask questions about why that is and a lot of it is because those relationships and the assumptions that are made because we're working very quickly and as a result you don't feel seen you don't feel safe So it's all those little things. And I'm constantly thinking about, right, what little things can I do to show that I'm a safe person? So my room is covered in rainbows. I'm trying to get pronoun badges for every member of staff um, on their name, like name badges with their pronouns and stuff. And like, can I do a display in the reception to kind of like put rainbows everywhere and show people that this is a safe space? Those things 
hopefully give messages that I don't necessarily have the time to articulate and give people that sense that I am safe and I am happy to have those conversations. Um, so yeah, come into my clinic room. It's full of rainbows and there are books like the vagina Bible on the shelf um, because I want people to know that they can raise that stuff. But we're constantly thinking in the back of our heads, how can we help facilitate those conversations with kind of visual clues and that sort of stuff. But it's, it's really tricky at the moment. As you mentioned, so many people have had negative experiences with GPs, with doctors. And one of the things that I think about a lot is that a lot of the times I don't think doctors know, because if you've had a negative experience, you often just don't go back. Right. And so the doctor might have thought that they have helped you um, because they haven't seen you again. And so there's there's this disconnect between like we often say like oh that that was a bad doctor that was a crap doctor that was a cruel doctor right and I I, I I very much doubt that the majority of these doctors go in thinking that they're going to hurt their patients they're going to make them extremely upset that they're going to invalidate them that they're going to do all of these types of things that's not why people become doctors right so it, it, it's such a disconnect between the patient experience and the medic experience and some of that. And I feel like the feedback loop isn't great because as I just said, like you have a bad experience with the doctor, you're just not going to go and see them again. And then you have to deal with the repercussions of having dealt with a bad doctor and how that changes how you engage with medical care for, for years to come and the way that you view your own health and all of those things and your access and ability to access care what do you do and I don't want to say bad doctor you know I've got I've got scare quotes going on I don't want to say bad doctor but it does feel like when you've had a negative experience with a doctor what rights do you have as a patient um I I'd like to talk about a few things I suppose I suppose I'd like to talk about self-advocacy I'd like to talk about what can you do if you do have these negative experiences and how can we get medics to then learn from them? Because I suppose it's, it's a loop, isn't it? So this is a, it's a really challenging area. And I feel this, one of the things I hate most about my career and being disabled simultaneously is that I'm obviously part of the medic community. And I'm also part of the chronic illness community and the disability community. And I spend a lot of time seeing them yelling at each other and feeling very stuck in the middle. And I hate it. Um, and when people are on Twitter yelling at me about how crap their GP is, it's really hard not to take that personally. And also I sit there going, I completely sympathize. Like, I know how awful it is when you have a bad appointment, but at the same time, I don't think people necessarily understand the pressures we're under and how we work. And it's really hard not to get defensive about that. And I'm trying really hard not to be defensive about that. But this is why a lot of us are burning out and leaving the profession and we don't have enough doctors, fundamentally. So... When it comes to having had a bad experience, first things first, we all know that we're human and fallible. And if you can go back with somebody with you and say, look, I don't feel like our last appointment went particularly well. I don't feel like I got what I was hoping for. I was hoping to have a discussion about how we can move forward. Honestly, I would far, far rather that than you think I'm a terrible doctor for the rest of my life. And it's an awkward conversation. It's a challenging conversation to have. But if you can, you know, definitely take someone with you and say, look, I'm not getting what I feel I need here. Can we talk about what I can expect, what I can hope for, how we can move forward? Because like it or not, this problem isn't going away. You know, that's really helpful. And often, you know, not often, but sometimes I can sit there after an appointment going, I'm still not sure why they were here. And often it's just that we haven't communicated our ex 
joint expectations for either of us as doctor or patient. So kind of refreshing and going, look, that didn't work. Let's try this again. Can be great. And those can be the best working relationships going forward because we get to know each other and we're not relying on that first seven minute interaction. If it's a GP, then you can write to the practice manager. If you're really upset about the way you've been spoken to or you're really upset about the processes, you can write to the practice manager. And that's often really key because always trying to come at this from a people are human, people are just trying to do their best in a shitty system then the practice manager can often take the time to kind of write a letter back or give you a call or have a meeting to say, look, this is what's happened. I've spoken to this doctor. This is what's going on. This is what we can try and sort. They can apologize if necessary, but they can also try and explain why, you know, you might not have got what you wanted out of the system. A lot of the time we're sitting there as GPs going, I really want to get you to see this surgeon. And the fact that I can't get you into the hospital is not something I have any power over. But just explaining that, because I think that's the sort of thing that often gets lost and it comes back on us. But yeah, practice managers are great because they're often not clinicians, mostly not clinicians, and they do understand the challenges that patients have and the systems we're working in. So they're a really, really good go between. If it's hospital, then talking to PALS, the patient advice and liaison service, they can often advocate on your behalf as well. And if you're having problems, then they can raise them and they can sit there and they can process. They are your voice in the hospital, certainly. So kind of using those resources are really key. I'd urge people not to leap on Google and leave crap reviews at surgeries. I appreciate it. It's very cathartic. We've all done that on TripAdvisor. But that's not necessarily the way to kind of improve things. If there are things about particularly your GP surgery that you're sitting there going, oh my goodness, I really wish they had X. Every GP surgery has to have a patient participation group. And those are fantastic. Like I've worked with patient groups. I love patient groups. I worked on the BMA one for many years. And it's great because you get this range of voices, you get a range of different experiences, genders, ages, conditions. Often patients come in going, you know, what would be really helpful is just having a reception desk that isn't so high up, I can't see it from my wheelchair. And it's not that we haven't put that in because we hate wheelchair users, it's because it hasn't been thought about. That generally is a very rare occurrence in a surgery where I work because I work in a wheelchair. So most of the time we're pretty hot on wheelchairs. But, you know, somebody just coming in and going actually, could you try this? Because it would really help. And offering us solutions. Gold dust. Love it. Bring it on. Because we're not going to know how to make everything perfect for everyone. And getting involved, it comes back to that partnership working. Like working with your local general practitioner in the community, it has to be a partnership. And I want any surgery I work in to be a community hub. I want it to be somewhere that people feel safe and welcomed and listened to. That takes work on both sides. So crack on, bring it on, have a look at your patient participation group. If you think about something like chronic fatigue, for example, a lot of GPs are still recommending people exercise. And so even if you, you haven't got access to the online groups or you just don't know to be part of the online groups where you know you can print off the research off the internet and show it to the doctors and you're kind of in a situation where that initial communication just has completely fallen through. How do you advocate for yourself? What can you do in situations like that? And I'll say I, I've definitely in the past, I have just not gone back. Like I had had, for example, physiotherapy where I didn't feel like I was getting better. I think it was just at the wrong level for me with what I was doing. And I remember I had one exercise and she said, do this exercise. I said, if I do this, I'm going to dislocate my knee. She made me feel like I was being lazy for not wanting to do that exercise. And I did that exercise in physio and that afternoon, 
or that evening I dislocated my knee and I remember going back and being like I told you this is your fault and being so angry and I think I just stopped going very soon after that and then my EDS got so much worse for years because I believed that my body was just getting worse and worse and worse and worse and physiotherapy quote-unquote didn't work for me but it was so much more nuanced than that and actually with appropriate support and treatment I've been able to undo some of that kind of years of neglect but that a lot of that was due to having things that were pitched at the wrong level for me and I thought I was advocating for myself quite well but even in those situations it it didn't work very well and so I'd love to hear any of your self-advocacy tips that you have for people. I'm smiling because I had an almost identical experience with a physio um, post knee surgery and I did exactly the same thing I didn't go back and now you know, five years on, four or five years on, I still have not really seen a physio. I've just kind of self-managed. And, you know, that's something that as a GP, I feel more qualified to do. Um, You know, I feel like I can manage a lot of it myself. And, you know, that's a very privileged position to be in. But it's really interesting how we've both had such similar experiences. It is really difficult. And there is no right answer, unfortunately. Personally, I tend to sit there going, you know what, if there's a GP in my surgery, I clearly have a clash with or I have not had good experience with before. I'm going to say, can I see somebody else, please, next time? And and you have the right to ask for that, yeah, right? Definitely. That you do have the right to yeah. ask for that. Yeah, absolutely. You have the right to ask. You may well have to wait longer. So, you know, I... Not because any of my GPs have been terrible at my practice, they're great, but because I have one I know who knows me, who knows my medical history, who I get on with really, really well, I will wait an extra couple of weeks to see her. Unless it's something like really kind of, you know, an ear infection where it's, you know, simple. If there's anything else, mental health, whatever, I will wait to see her because I know she gets me and I know we'll have a good outcome, and a good conversation. And I think finding those GPs is gold dust. I mean, it's not always easy, but it does make a difference because, I mean, I've done a lot of work in kind of like the counselling and psychotherapy type spaces and it's an area I'm really interested in. And when you get a new counsellor, when you try a new therapist, they always give you a first session where you get to meet them and you see how you vibe off each other. And it's completely acceptable if you go, you know what, I don't think we're the right fit. That's fine. And being able to accept that and go, you're not the right fit for me. That's okay. And actually your entire general practice may not be the right fit for you and you might need to go and register elsewhere. And that's very difficult if you live rurally. But actually, in most places, you've got options of entire surgeries. If you really are not getting on with your surgery and you don't like their ethos and you don't like the way it's working, a lot of the time you can try and register somewhere else. One thing that I think is so often left out of a lot of the conversations in the chronic illness space is personality. There are always going to be some people with whom we have personality clashes or communication difficulties and our medical professionals aren't blank slates. What is a good doctor or a bad doctor for one person might be the total opposite for another. And I mean, I think this is something that we don't acknowledge enough because we're trying so hard from the medical perspective. We're trying so hard to kind of uniform the whole profession. You know, we're all trained on how to speak, on what to say, on which questions to ask. And we're examined on that. And a lot of the time that does work. But I've noticed I do work very differently now I'm up in Yorkshire to how I practiced when I was down in a very posh part of London. 
you know, I phrase things differently. I always, I kind of joke that when I worked down in, you know, posh South London, it was always, let's talk about your lifestyle choices and the long-term potential impacts of these. Whereas in Yorkshire, it's you smoke too much, you drink too much, carry on like this, you'll be dead by 50. And, you know, you you can be, I do speak to patients a lot more differently. I'm not generally that blunt, but I can be. And actually, I have a far better relationship because I'm not trying to fit myself into this mould. Is it a riskier way of practising? Hells yeah. Are some people going to not like me? Probably, because I'm a human. And until we replace the entire medical profession with robots, we are never going to get this wonderful, consistent, perfect appointment every time. I, I have no idea who's coming into my room and I have to read them, work out what's going on and work out how best to communicate with them in the space of a minute. That is not always going to work. <laughs> and so actually, you know, I think we do need to talk about personality and doctors and how different doctors are better for different people to do that and to be able to make changes and to be able to create a system that works better for people, we need to acknowledge the fact that the current system is falling apart around us and we we just can't do it right now. My overriding message would be that there is very little I have not seen or heard about. There is very little that surprises me completely. And I think once we can kind of break down some of the ick around talking about our health, around our bodies, then we end up having far better conversations. Uh, A lot of the time people come in and they apologise for me having to look at their vulva. (laughs) They apologise for me having to stick a finger up their bum. And they're so embarrassed and it's so kind of like, and I was like, mate, you're like the fourth today. It's fine. And I think those are the kind of open conversations we need to be having um, because the time and the effort people put in to feeling worried and feeling ashamed and feeling scared and embarrassed is time that I could be trying to help them. So I want to have like, I think conversations like this are really important because it allows us to kind of address some of that and to reassure people that You can come in and tell me about your really weird sex life and the challenges you might be having. And I'm very happy to help with that. I'd rather that than spend 10 minutes going. So the problem is down, down below. When we say down below, where, how, when, and just preparing for those conversations and thinking about what you want to get out of those conversations is absolutely key. One thing I'm very aware of when people ask me for advice in this area is that my experiences with communication in medical settings will be very different from people who are, for example, neurodivergent. Do you have any advice for neurodivergent people when it comes to interacting with medical professionals? Sometimes I think it's really helpful to kind of give people a heads up at the beginning of a consultation. So, you know, if it's something that I'm going to be talking about, like my mental health or whatever, I will often go in and say, not so much at the moment because I have a great GP who knows me, but I would go in and say, look, I. I have ADHD. I struggle to piece all of this together. So you might need to give me a minute. I might just wander off, but I will come back. And if you've got any questions, please just throw them at me as I go. Um, And kind of like prefacing it with that. Similarly, taking in advocates is so important and can be so helpful, but they need to be a person you trust, who knows you, who you are comfortable hearing about your medical history. I think sometimes that's a real problem when people bring in, you know, mum who knows you, who loves you, but who don't feel comfortable talking about your sex life in front of. 
you've got to think a little bit about what you're comfortable with that person hearing and seeing, because that's not a decision your GP can make for you. But when it comes to neurodivergency, a lot of the time I will, if I know that I'm seeing somebody who is neurodivergent, who might be on the autism spectrum, I will try and book them to appointments if I think communication is going to take a bit longer. And that's something you can often ask for. Um, some surgeries just don't have the capacity to do it. But actually, I'd far rather book a double appointment in advance with somebody than have like multiple appointments over weeks and weeks because we haven't managed to communicate properly. And that kind of like forward planning, I find really helpful. It's not always possible in the current system, but saying to reception, look, I'm autistic or whatever it might be, I'm going to really struggle with a 10 minute appointment. Is there any way we can maybe plan a double a bit further in advance or is there something we can do to try and facilitate this would it help if I send in my concerns via an e-consult first so the GP can have a look at it and have a think about it you know there are loads of different ways to communicate with us now you know we have these e-consults where you can send messages to your GP and many surgeries we now use text messages photos all of that sort of stuff we've got these new resources that a lot of them came through the pandemic um, so if there's something you're particularly worried about, you can say, look, I've got this weird thing on my skin. Can I take a photo and send it to the GP so they can have a look at it in advance? We can always try. I can never promise that we're going to manage everything that we'd like to, but we can always try. And I think having that open kind of problem solving communication partnership is really, really key to having a good relationship with your doctor. A big thank you to Dr. Hannah Barham brown for joining me on the podcast. If you're not already, I really encourage you to follow Hannah's work and if you have the time, do watch her two brilliant TED Talks. I'll link them in the episode notes. If you find this podcast helpful and want to support my work, please consider subscribing to my Restroom newsletter. It's an in-depth look at how to live and live well with chronic illness. Find out more and become a free or premium subscriber at natashalipman.substack.com. Premium memberships are £5 a month or £50 a year and give you access to exclusive content. Please rate, leave a review and share the episode as that really helps new people find us. And that's all from me. Thanks so much for joining me in the restroom. Ta-ta for now.